Hello and welcome to our new as yet unnamed podcast. That isn't the title, it's just it might be. a placeholder. <laughs> One uh, of the contenders. My name's Callum Watts. I'm Callum Roper. And I'm Bradley Orsop. And uh, we're just, what was the, what's the purpose of this podcast? That's a good question. Why don't you tell us soon to be Dr. Orsop? <laughs> um, I suppose to, to talk about national and local politics mm. um, from a, from a, a left wing perspective um, and, and give a space for discussion about what's going on locally in Lincoln and, and some national politics that's going to affect us as well. Mm. Yeah, because the, the podcast was something I've wanted to do for a while, um, but it was you who suggested that we needed an outlet this sort of uh, thing and uh, we've sort of uh, recruited Callum as well oh, yes. uh, to, to come along with it and we thought we'd start today with the probably the biggest news of the day from a, a Labour perspective I guess uh, nothing to do with the UK we're talking about uh, the French the French have led the way yet again uh, what were the figures that we pulled out earlier um, so obviously depending on, on who you ask so <laughs> some mainstream media outlets are saying it's only tens of thousands of people but it, it, it's more in the millions uh, something like 69% of the French public supporting uh, the strike action uh, you have people from lawyers through to firemen yeah. out protesting against the, uh, the the pension rises that have, that have happened, or the proposed pension rises in France. Mm. That's right, because um, President Macron, he, wants, he got in uh, by default, really, because uh, the other candidate was worse in France. Mm. I, th- I think <laughs> the, the, uh, the last presidential election, because they have um, a, a marginally better system than ours, in the sense that uh, it's first past the post, in the first round and then if someone doesn't get over 50% of the vote the top two candidates who theoretically could also have less than 50% of the vote between mm. them then go forward to a runoff. and then the last presidential election I think it was was it 2017 2018 so sometime around then think, yeah. um, uh, the uh, two candidates one was Macron who was a centrist I'm going to turn my phone off uh, <laughs> to stop it from from being one was uh, the centrist Macron a uh, big sort of backing from the corporate sector and so on but his opponent was um, Marine Le Pen who mm-hmm. obviously is an open fascist effectively yeah, yeah. and I think that uh, was it Yanis Varoufakis who said that uh, socialists should vote for the centrist with as much enthusiasm with which you'll oppose him the day after the election. It's very dangerous. We can't let fascists yeah. get their own. Well, it's, it's an interesting situation in France because the party socialist, um, my, my French pronunciation completely off there, <laughs> is completely decimated. Um, Hollande, he, he stepped down. Uh, in shame, but they did have a, a program of um, social and political reforms. They were rather critical of the EU, much mm-hmm. like um, Marine Le Pen. But clearly, it didn't break through. And I, I think they're sitting under ten percent in terms of the representation in the French Parliament. They were mm-hmm. completely wiped out in the presidential election. Well, it's it's true social democracy across across Europe, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. we're, our vote shares in the toilet. Um, okay. Britain was the one shining beacon of hope, uh, uh, you know, across Europe. Um, 
under Corbyn we, we'd increased our vote share in, in 2017 and it, it looked like we were going to book the trend but obviously yeah. recent events which we'll get onto later suggest perhaps otherwise so I mean so, social democracy is in trouble across Europe really mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think there are necessarily quick and easy answers to that but strike action like we're seeing in, in Paris and across France is, is a start I think mm. um, so it was 2017 the last French presidential election but we've had millions of people, apparently, out, yes, on, the, yeah. out on the streets. And of course, it's, that's not all of the people who are on strike, is it? No, no, There'll no. be many millions uh, more than that from uh, about half a dozen unions. And I, I was reading this morning that uh, it's even moderate unions, so-called moderate unions, uh, that didn't want to uh, go out on strike but have been pushed into it because Macron... Uh, basically, France has this huge collection of different pension schemes, much, much more complicated than ours. Um, and Macron's argument is that we should simplify those into one universal points-based system, um, which sounds nice on paper, but what the unions will argue is you've got people like the people who work on the uh, Parisian subway. Mm. and back in the 60s and 70s they negotiated a deal because they work underground and their, their health is adversely affected by that that means that they're going to you know they're going to be less fit they might live less long you know they might not live as long um, it's going to affect their social life and so on and in exchange for that they get to retire a few years earlier on a full pension so that was the deal that was kind of struck that, that and that helps the French subway get along. Macron wants to get rid of that. Ultimately, he wants to raise the pension age to be universal. He wants to raise it from 62 to 64. Uh, but, I mean, isn't that, you know, is it a bit selfish of French workers, maybe, because our pension well, age has just gone up to 60? I think, that's, I think it's completely right, you know, and I think, as, I think we should look at ourselves uh, in this country and the lessons we can learn from the French, the fact that they're so... Uh, strong in standing up for their workers' rights. Uh, their pension age rises by two years and there's outrage. People are out on the streets. Mm. Here we sort of brush it off as, well, that's what we do. we just got to raise it because, you know, we'll bite the bullet and we'll save mm. a bit of money here and there with conditions. It's all austerity and cuts. And we just take it as part of it that every so often the, uh, the pension age will go up. But how should we respond uh, to people when they say, well, we have to... We might, we might not be happy that the pension age has gone up to 67, but most people are used to it being at 65. Um, mm. How do we respond to people who might say, well, you know, if I have to work till 65, as was, why should the French get to retire at 62, as was, or well, even 64? Yeah. I, think, I think part of it is, is uh, solidarity, isn't it? I mean, we, we, should, be, we should be looking at, across the world, you know, a levelling out of... of Conditions for all people, mm-hmm. and that that's one of the promises at the heart of the EU. That, that it's not always been used to that end, but it but it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I mean, in terms of raising the pension age, there's, there's only two reasons why a government would need to raise the pension age. It, it would be because they feel like they don't have enough money, um, so they want they want to be paying pensions to people for less time, mm-hmm. or um, they've not got enough people to fill jobs. Now, obviously, neither of those things are true in either the UK or France. Um, we, we've got the money in the system to, to pay pensions and good pensions to people um, from the age of 60, really. Um, 
but we we just don't want to take the political decisions required to, to get that money, i.e. Like taxing rich people yeah. more. Um, and obviously, we haven't got we haven't got a problem with not enough people to fill jobs, so we need to force people to stay on for longer. We've got the reverse problem. We've got large levels of unemployment, particularly for young people, mm. um, and it's worse in many other countries around Europe. So th- there's not really a justification for this, um, because the the only the only way you can create a situation where you're saying you haven't got enough money to do it is if you're deliberately ignoring other options for raising revenue, which is taxing rich people. Yeah, I mean, I just got some statistics here. We got. The, in France, they spend 14% of GDP on pensions, whereas in the UK, we only spend about 6% of GDP on pensions. Mm. So it's quite a stark difference, and they get a much better pension than we do here. Yes. So not only do we have to wait longer to get that pension, it's also a, a, a pittance in comparison to France. And, it, and it's, it's a fundamental part of the welfare system, I think. Mm-hmm. You, you, know, you, should, you should have secure... Um, you should be able to prosper in retirement. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you, you shouldn't just be scraping by either on a pension. You should you should have a, a nice pension that allows you to enjoy retirement years. But see, people are living longer now as well. You know, some people could be even with pension age rate uh, raises, people are still going to be retired for a long time. They should they should be able to enjoy life. They sh- it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a source of, of stress or worry for people. But isn't that one of the the counter arguments though? Because we're all living longer. I mean, when when the pension age was kind of set in the mid-20th century as, as being 60 in most countries, um, most people didn't live beyond 70. So you'd expect to have a retirement. And in fact, a lot of people might not even make it to, to, to 60. Mm. Um, so it was reasonable in, in that respect. Most people would have a retirement age of 5 to 10 years. Mm. But now people are living... I mean, the life expectancy at the moment in this country for... Men is it's 82, I think, or 81. Sounds about right. 84. Um, and for men, for women, it's 84. It's always a couple of years higher yeah. for some reason. Um, and so, is that not unsustainable? Because we're going to have all of those boomers, right, <laughs> you know, who are already retiring, more and more of them are going to be living longer and longer and longer, and then the rest of us have to pay for them to live. So is it not reasonable then to, to adjust the, the, the retirement age? I mean, ultimately what, what we're asking there is, is should people get longer, as society develops, mm-hmm. should, should people have more of their life in which they don't have to work to live? Um, and the answer for me is yes. I think as, as society progresses, a, a, good, a good sign of that progress is, is lowering the amount of someone's life they have to work to, to, to live I think we should want people to have and, and bear in mind the state pension age is, is the point at which you can retire it's not the point where you have to retire so people want to it's about giving people more choice in their life isn't it if people if people hit the age of 61 and they still want to they still want to carry on working because they love their job or, or whatever um, then then they can still do that um, but in terms of saying actually at this point you no longer have to work we feel like you've done enough and, and, and we're, we're willing to foot the bill at this point. I, I, I think the, the longer someone's life we can make that, the better. And, and the money's there to do it. Yeah. I, I would also say, I think the, the sort of discussion around the pension age is so negative. It's almost a bad thing that people are living longer. And yes, it's a fundamental issue that we face as a society. How do we deal with this? Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it's a good thing that people are living longer. And it's a good thing that they get into the age of retirement and they're living well beyond that. Because if you've worked for 50, 60 years, whatever, 
well, up to the age of retirement, you've contributed so much to society. You've contributed in taxation, maybe in volunteering and other things you do in your community. The least you deserve is a good pension and be able to spend a few years just relaxing a bit, enjoying your latter years, because ultimately, yes, we're healthier and we're living longer, but it doesn't stop our bodies getting frail. It doesn't stop uh, people getting dementia. It doesn't stop other illnesses affecting how we can work. And, it, and it's not like all that stuff stops. You know, just because someone stops working doesn't mean they're not contributing to society mm-hmm. anymore. Um, if you, anyone involved in local politics will see the age and demographics in local politics, and that, that's an issue in itself. But you know, there's a lot of people that will and people retire. people working in charities and things like yeah, that. Yeah, pe- well. people will retire. It doesn't mean they just stop engaging with their community. It doesn't mm. mean they stop doing things that are useful to society, whether it's grandparent duties, whether it's volunteer work, whether it's local politics. You know, these people don't just drop off the field. Well, sometimes but they do, the but that's an issue with society. There is a drive to want to do something. I mean, obviously, I work for a trade union. I work for Unison. I know that you often get people who are reaching the end of their working life the statutory working life um, and they get sick sometimes and they worry that they're going to be coerced into being into retiring mm. and for them their work is you know that's their life you know it's their social life because they've got their work colleagues and things like that Ian Duncan Smith's argument um, <laughs> is that uh, people shouldn't be coerced into into retiring is there something we, we, we can do about that? Or maybe people just need to retire and discover life, mm. life after work. I, I think there's, there's other like, sort of deeper issues there in terms of neoliberal politics and how it, we, we have to earn our existence. We have to earn the right to, to live, to exist. Mm. And we have to constantly be productive and to mm. be producing things mm. and making things. And um, I have no doubt that that plays a role in in how people feel when they retire and their loss of meaning and, and also how society is structured it's structured around work you know that's where we're, we're told to give our where we're told to get up our, our sense of identity and meaning from and and some people have jobs that they absolutely love and they derive a sense of fulfillment from that um, but a lot of other people also have jobs they hate um, but then it, it's a catch-22 because if they if they you know they, they have to work at a job they don't enjoy then if they retire then they feel like they're not doing anything useful at all so they don't really join retirement either what we really need is a shift in society where there are people have the opportunity and the skills and, and, and the resources to to get fulfillment from a number of avenues in life now how do we achieve that socialism <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> i suppose we would start with firstly paying a proper a proper pension um as it currently stands you have things like fuel poverty a lot of elderly people are lonely uh, they, they might not be able to afford to get out uh, into their communities or might not be able to link up with people. And giving them a, a proper pension is a good start for that because at least they can afford to live a comfortable life. Because mm-hmm. when we live comfortably, we're more likely to give up our time in volunteering, in engagement with our communities, with our community. Because we're not living uh, effectively pension to pension, as it were. Mm. I think... I think- it's a, it's a long-term question, I think, but I think in the short term, the very least we can be doing is reversing austerity mm-hmm. and investing in communities and public services again. Mm-hmm. Um, if people have... And investing in education as well. I think you know, if people have, throughout their life, the more opportunity to, to learn, to mm-hmm. acquire new skills, to engage in volunteering and community projects, mm-hmm. then, then when retirement comes, it's not a, 
well that that's my only source of, of, of socialising gone mm. it, it's a case of okay so that area of my work's finished but I've still got these projects I'm involved in I've still got these resources to learn more you know there's and some people do that you know some people retire but you know they, they've not really retired they're involved in loads of projects and things and mm. um, but a lot of people that work like a like a grueling job don't mm. have the energy or the resources to it to, to get those skills mm. or, or, or to access those resources. Mm. Um, so I think at a very minimum, you know, we need to be looking at reversing austerity and investing yeah. in public services and, and, and communities. And actually, I think Carol's point is good in terms of just giving people a decent pension, actually raising pension in that case. Mm. Um, I mean, at the moment, um, I've met a few people um, who actually say there's currently a booming market for toy trains and the reason for that is that there's a huge number of people who grew up in the 50s and 60s um, train watching because there was the golden age of steam and mm. things like that and those are the people who are just retiring and those who have disposable income can afford to shell out hundreds and thousands of pounds in some cases for these little toy train sets mm. um, and I've met some people with some quite extensive ones and that's the way they want to enjoy their retirement, which is yeah. which is quite sweet, I think. I think yeah, the whole good look to them. Good look to them. Why not? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. I wonder what it will be for us. Fortnite or something. Everyone, you got a load of old people, like eighty-year-olds on Fortnite. It could be or Wii Sports. I don't know. Yeah, everyone has a Wii in in their retirement age. Call of Duty. Yeah. I mean, that would be good, wouldn't it? Sort of connecting up different care homes as well. If they're playing online, exactly. Or YouTube channels for how yeah. to survive your retirement. Because I, I've often thought that all of these forms of social media are not going to go anywhere, are they? Yeah. Um, they evolve a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, they won't. We, they won't will we will still, yeah. you know, obviously, unless the apocalypse happens or it all goes completely to hell, you know, which it might. Um, yeah, like people that are like 80, 90 today, they, they don't use stuff like YouTube, but it's not, but it's because it wasn't around when they yeah, were Yeah, they still read the newspaper yeah. though. Yeah. And that was like their form of getting the news, whereas we were always on like Twitter or Facebook or whatever, mm. speaking to people. We, we will still be using the same communication yeah. channels, just like previous generations will still mm. use letters and, yeah. uh, and wind up telephones. Maybe, okay, maybe not wind up telephones, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I, I've always wanted one of those old fashioned ones that goes on the hook. Oh, yeah. 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 But most, I don't have a landline, I don't think most people do these days. No. But. Okay, so shall we move on to our, uh, oh, no, actually I was going to say one thing, well, just to close off the retirement discussion, I think something that's interesting about it is that whereas there are some issues that might divide us by class, everybody retires, assuming they're not knocked on the head first. <laughs> so maybe, you know, so maybe uh, can that possibly explain the degree of solidarity that we see in France? Yeah. Because even if you're a youngster now, eventually you hope to retire. Well, possibly, but it still divides on a class line because people people can top up a state pension with a private pension, can't they? Mm, yeah. And um, so if you're if you're wealthier, mm. I mean, and if you're super rich, then you don't need to worry about a pension, do you? Because you've got savings and investments and all the rest of it. Um, so I think it, I think it does still cut on a class line. Um, 
I, I don't know because it's not something we really see here very often. Although we've seen little bits of it, like if you look at the UCU strikes across university campuses mm. um, last year, there, there, were, there were over a dozen student occupations in support of, of pension strikes. Mm. And I think typically university senior management try and draw a bit of a wedge between staff and students, and mm. they, they play the line of, "Oh, well, look, they're catching your lectures and they're not marking Customers your exams." Customers versus yeah, 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 yeah and, and and I think they have had some traction in, in driving that wedge before, but. Um, and I think, you know, student politics nationally is a bit of a low ebb since tuition fees, really. Yeah. Um, so, and it's not a very natural policy issue for students to suddenly get really radicalised about, you know, quite quite a complex discussion about pensions for staff. There couldn't be a section of adults further away from retirement, I suppose. Yeah, and, and, and it, you know, and it's and your, it's your lecturer, yeah. it's about your lecturer's yeah. pension and stuff. It's not, a, it's not an obvious sort of thing to radicalise students, but we, it did. Mm. Um, it didn't happen in Lincoln because we, we were part of the USS pension scheme but uh, across campuses across the country there were student occupations there were mass protests in sign of you know student staff solidarity mm. so uh, I don't know maybe it's because we have more precarious work conditions yeah. now than we did 30-40 years ago may, maybe what we're seeing in France could become become more common in places like the UK as well there are some quite insidious arrangements as well because as I understand that the UK has two pension systems for universities, yeah. and whichever one you were signed up to, if you started working in the 90s or 80s, for example, if that is not the main pension scheme that the university that you work for uh, uses, then you can't go on strike, because yeah. even though it's your pension. Yeah, there's people, there's people, it's, it's the pre and the post-92 institutions, mm. so Lincoln obviously is a post-92 one, so, so we're not under the USS scheme, mm. but there are members of staff here that are. Um, they, they have that pension yes. scheme because they taught yeah. a, a, a university that's older in the past um, and obviously we were balloted for strike action this time around because it was about pensions but a wider set of issues as well mm. um, but we, we didn't reach the threshold here um, of 50% to, to, to take action um, but there are staff members here that are on a USS pension mm. um, and they sort of, they're frustrated because they feel like it, it's comrades in other unions that are basically fighting for them but, but they can't join in because of the, because of the union laws mm. Um, Do you think there's a case for they're being denied their human rights almost because they're being denied the right? Yeah, to I mean, I, I think that I think whether a union strikes or not should be entirely down to, to that union and the members mm-hmm. in that union. I don't think the government has any any business telling imposing quotas and and restrictions on the right to strike. I think that that's that's for a union and, mm-hmm. and it's their business. Well, it comes back to driving that wedge between people as well. Because you, you see, certainly in the public sector, they've tried to drive that wedge between sort of the old group of people that have worked in the civil service for years and years, mm. and then the new intake of people have been given these new deals and they haven't had a say on it. But that, for them, that's all that they know. So these, these sort of old, old mouldy people sitting in the corner moaning mm. as they see it, they're just sort of making a fuss about nothing because we're already in those deals. Well, it, driving that wedge it seems to be a theme Across but it's, it's trying to individualise things, isn't mm. it? The, the, the whole strength of the union is, is through collective power. So wherever governments or bosses can can individualise conditions, so you know the, the whole the whole thing that it's illegal to, to have solidarity strikes in this country. Um, if if a union in one sector is on strike, um, you know your union can't join them if it's mm. not an issue that directly affects your industry. 
um, it's illegal to do that. But the the purpose of that is to is to reduce solidarity, is to reduce collective power right. and, and make it more. You've individualized it to the level of an industry, and then there's various things that, that corporations will do to then within that industry individualize it more. And, and it same, needs to be resisted as much as possible. The same can be said on the railways. You know, the, the passengers sort of being stirred up by the rail companies to uh, basically turn on the drivers and the staff that are striking for better condition, yeah. better pay. Uh, being, t- being told that they're just shutting down their, their means to get around when actually there's a bigger issue at hand and a lot of the, the staff don't get the solidarity that they may have mm-hmm. maybe 30, 40 years ago. I think that's why it's so powerful to see what's happening in Paris because mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a refusal to allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. The, people, the people of France are saying, well, no, we're not going to allow you to, to make this into a, uh, an individualised issue. It, it's an issue that affects all of us. Um, and these are our friends, these are our family members. And they have succeeded, well, they, they seem to be getting somewhere as well, yeah. because uh, Macron has announced, or one of his, uh, it's Edward Philippe, isn't it, who's, who's the Prime Minister, has announced mm-hmm. that, that they're going to drop that part yeah. of the pension change temporarily. Yeah. So They're going to wait for it to die down and probably try and push it through again yeah. in another guise of some description. But, so it, but this shows what, what can happen. You get people out on the streets, yeah. it can change things. Mm-hmm. And the indication from those unions is that they're going to continue until the pension reform is removed entirely. Mm-hmm. So good, uh, good, yeah. good luck to them. Yeah. So if we want to, so obviously we don't have to wait for a Labour government to change things potentially. Oh, yeah. um, but we'll move on to the next item on the agenda. <laughs> um, obviously, tragically, in on the twelfth of December, uh, the Labour Party did. Not do particularly well in the in the in that general election. Uh, someone did say, "Well, we didn't really lose it because we weren't in power to begin with." Technicality. Yes, slight bit of uh, political pedantry there, but uh, doesn't make me feel any better. Doesn't make you feel any better, no. Um, but we, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, said that he would stand down. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, of course, who increased the uh, Labour Party membership nearly threefold uh, to uh, over half a million members, making us, making the Labour Party the uh, largest political party in Europe, much bigger, slightly bigger than the SPD in Germany. Um, But we are going to have a new leader within the next three months, I think it's the 4th of April is when it's announced. Uh, A few people have put their names forward, Uh, Kia Starmer, who was the Shadow Minister for Exiting the European Union, uh, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was uh, treasury, uh, Shadow treas- Treasury Minister, Lisa Nandy, I think, is a backbencher uh, at the moment. She was at the time, yeah. Yes, uh, as is Jess Phillips, um, Emily Thornbury, uh, Shadow Foreign Minister, Clive Lewis, also a backbencher. Oh, no, I think he actually did get a position of Shadow Cabinet. Check, check that out. And Barry Gardner. Uh, well, not Barry Gardner. Well, ba- ba- Barry Gardner. Maybe Barry Gardner. Barry Gardner was put forward and then sort of briefly... He's been in and out and then he's oh, maybe, maybe currently shaking there. it all about. I don't uh, know. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. he's um, So... Uh, um, Clive Lewis, uh, Shadow Financial Secretary. He's Shadow Secretary. Financial Secretary. Yeah. It was also Shadow Defence Secretary a few years ago, briefly. Oh, yeah. Um... So, what do you think we need in a new leader? Where, 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 do, we, where do we start? 
Well, it's it's a it's a very complex question because I think the new leader certainly needs to be sticking to the same sort of slate of policies. I think the policies weren't the problem in in the last general election. I think they need to be maybe younger. I think they need to still be of the left, as I say. They need to also appeal across the board in terms of the Labour Party because as as a movement we now got to we got to stitch ourselves back together and we need to move as one because if we're going to beat the Tories we need to be that unified force that we once were and yes we have factionism yes we have disagreements that comes with every political party but it certainly needs to be somebody to carry on the Corbyn project not necessarily be a Corbyn too but to be someone to carry on that project, build the grassroots membership, democratise the party, keep in the good policies, but ensure that it's representative of this broad church that, that the Labour Party is. Mm. I mean, but the, the last time we won a general election uh, and we were united in the way you described was in 2005 under Tony Blair. So what's the justification for, you know, a lot of people saying, well, what's the justification then for carrying on the Corbyn project? Well, I think there is a... Well, lost two elections. Yes, and, and, and we can't escape that fact. But taking out Brexit, if you look at 2017, Brexit wasn't a bigger issue. And we, and we increased our vote share massively. Well, I mean, in, in the both elections, Corbyn's still got more votes than we've had since 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, I think possibly since 2001, I think still check the figures. Um, but you know, if you look at the end of the Blair era, you look at Brown and you look at Miliband, all of who are defined by sort of being on the right of the party. Miliband, okay, a bit more to the left, but still fairly centrist politics. Mm-hmm. Um, Corbyn in 2017 and even I think in 2019 got a higher share of the vote than any of them. Um, so, so if you look at where we came from when Corbyn became leader, I think, think things look a bit different there. And I mean, Blair, Blair did well in '97. He got a landslide victory, but we started hemorrhaging votes, even in Labour heartlands, ever since. Um, and, and nationally, voter turnout plummeted. And, you know, that's my area that I look at is, is political engagement. Voter turnout plummeted in the Blair years. Um, so I think we really did see a long-term process of quite profound disillusionment. Not not that everyone loved politicians before Blair, but I think the Blair era ushered in a real toxic sort of politics. Mm. I think. Um, but it did win elections. It it did, but on decreasing majorities, decreasing vote share, and, yeah. and actually incre- decreasing voter turnout. Yeah, I mean, by 2005, the vote share was on 35%. 2010, 29%. 2015, 30%. So the soft left has done the worst in 2010 and 15, really. And then in 2017, it jumps back up to 40%. That That's the, well... 40.7% in 2001 for the So what's happened to the Tory vote over that time? If, if Labour's vote has sort of held up, as it were? Um, the Tory vote 2001 was 31%. It was 30% in 97. 2005 it was 32%, 36 in 2010. So that's gone up. 36 again in 2015 and 42. So that's continuously gone up. Mm. Meanwhile, our vote has sort of it's gone down it's spiked again, and it's since gone down slightly again. I mean, I think, I think this recent election. Let, let, let's get into it. Let's get into the elephant in the room. The the issue that, that stumped us in this election was Brexit, yeah. um, and I, I think the easy thing there to say is that we lost because of our referendum position, 
I don't think that's true. I think we lost because of Brexit, but I don't think we lost because of the position we adopted at the last conference. I think we lost Bre- on Brexit because we allowed the other parties to stake out the clear and easy positions, but way before us. I think if, we, if, if at the September conference we had, where we decided that we were going to back a referendum, I don't think it mattered what position we took at that point. I think the election was already lost. Yeah. I think if we'd have come out and firm would leave, or if we'd come out and firm remain, uh, with a referendum or not for either of those positions, um, I, I don't think it would have made a difference. Um, I think the pro- but firm remain didn't work very well for the Liberal Democrats, and no. obviously, I mean, they had to exist if you like to represent the extreme remainers. If you like, someone had to stand up for those guys, presumably. But they uh, found that it worked very badly on the doorstep, even amongst remainers themselves. Mm. But if um, you if you look at the voting percentages. Yeah, people, people are sort of interpreting the, the December election as, oh, well, well that's, that's it then, Brexit settled, it, it's mm-hmm. an overwhelming mandate. But if you look at voter percentages, uh, the, the numbers are still pretty similar. Mm-hmm. The country's still pretty much split 50-50 on the issue, mm-hmm. um, which suggests to me that Labour, whatever it did in, in the last few months, wasn't going to win, I don't think. Uh-huh. What, the, the, pro- the only way I think we really could have won on Brexit is if we'd have took a firm, strong position for one side or the other, very early on, I'm talking like years ago. Yeah, I think the writing was on the writing was on the wall, yeah. or, or maybe after the 2017 general election, I think there was still scope. If we'd have come out and strongly or strong remain at that point, I think I think it was admirable for a while for Corbyn to try and appeal to both sides. I I got why he did that, um, but it, it just didn't work. Okay. And I think I think the the, the clear unnuanced positions were taken early on. Um, and, and without those, I don't think I just don't think we could have won. I don't think we could have won this election unless we'd have years ago taken a firmer stance on Brexit one way or the other. I think the the public opinion on Brexit is this: we've now had is it four democratic exercises in relation to Brexit, or have been used as a, a sort of a, a quasi referendum on Brexit. We had the referendum itself. We've had two general elections, and we've had the European elections. All of them were very convincingly coming out in favour of leave and I think as a party we should have understood that maybe I don't think that's true I, I, think, I think if you look at if you look at the elections we've had the country's still split down the middle on it if you look I, at but you look at the percentages that 52% of the population in the last election voted for a party that either supports a second referendum or supports Remain and 48% voted for for clear and ambiguous leave vote. I think the country still, that hasn't changed since the referendum itself. It's still pretty much 50-50. Is it, is it to some extent a bit of a moot point? Um, because, I mean, just just being wary as well that everyone's kind of sick of the debate anyway. It's done. Um, yeah, it's been done you know, And ultimately, a large section of the electorate, okay, maybe not quite a majority, but ultimately enough to give the Tories a parliamentary majority voted to get Brexit, Brexit done and now they have an 80 seat majority in Parliament and they can do what they like in terms of Brexit and they will be able to carry on doing what they mm. like with Brexit you know I know that we know that the, the whole idea that it will be over by the 20th of January is plainly false but ultimately mm. they will still have control of the process after the 20th of January and for the next four years after I think, that. I think, I think uh, the take home for Labour though is that, is that Brexit was what. So what I'm basically trying to say is that how do we kind of look forward? Well, the the question was was what 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 possible reason could we still defend the Corbyn project? I think and and, and want a a a continuity candidate in some sense. 
I think the, the point is is that Brexit was a big part of what we lost. I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it's a big part of it. But I also sort of feel like that, that was cast in stone quite a while ago. Um, but the point is, it, it wasn't the radical left politics of Corbynism. If you look at polls, the majority of those projects mm. are, are, and policies are very popular. Green, like Green, New, Green New Deal and further action climate change, massively popular. Mm. Nationalisation of rail, massively popular. Um, high living wage, um, taxing ri- the rich more, which is something that the Tories, you know, cry foul over. It, they're all very popular well, policies. Do, 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 what do you think of the, the claim that the manifesto was overloaded? I, I think the manifesto itself wasn't overloaded. The issue was was how we promoted those policies. So you look at the Tories and, and indeed the Lib Dems, they were less successful. But you can also look at the SNP, for example. They have clear messages. You know what they're standing for. But the approach we took was more of a scatter gun. We were just firing loads of good policies, but by the time it's reported in the press or, you know, construed in the press, we'll put it that way, mm-hmm. as being some sort of socialist revolutionary idea, something basic that's carried out in places like Scandinavia, not exactly hotbeds of revolution. Um, by firing out so many policies, I think the public had no time to process that. They had no time to almost affiliate with ideas. Whereas a lot of people could quickly get on the side of get Brexit done. And that was repeated again and again and again. Mm. Likewise, the message of Scottish independence is repeated again and again and again. Fighting for Scotland against the Westminster tyranny or whatever. Mm. You know, those are clear messages. They broke through. Our message wasn't clear enough because we had so many, rightly so, we had so many great ideas and so many policies and after being out of power for nine years and austerity, we rightly should be saying all these great things. But in the election, the 2019 general election, it was over one issue, and that was Brexit. And we had nothing that was clear enough and concise enough that would break through that that barrier in the general public. Do you think we could do better if we chose two or three big headline policies and just continually push those throughout the campaign? I think think that, um, that, but also what's the underlying narrative behind what we're saying mm-hmm. and we and we sort of had stuff about how the rich are fleecing us off and 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 that sort of, and we sort of had stuff about how the tories have ruined britain but it wasn't a very clear sort of this is the narrative mm-hmm. that that taps into how you yeah. feel as a voter so i think we we maybe i think all the policies we have are great um, but we could, in terms of our media focus, we could have focused on two or three, like you say. But I think what's probably even more important is what, what narrative ties that together as well. Mm. So what do we think about... So those are the, the, the policies, if you like. But again, we're not going to have another election for nearly five years. Well, I mean, um, we'll see. We'll we'll see, see, we'll see, we'll see. Politics. It, could, it, could, <laughs> it could be two or it could be ten if, uh, if someone decides, if there's another war or... If Boris Johnson decides, you know what, because Parliament, Parliament's sovereign. I mean, this well, is something yeah. to point out. It, it could yeah. just decide to extend its own term. I, I don't think that would go down very I well. Mean, it's not well, you say that, but the guy who's take it, tried to prorogue Parliament, he's taken on the Supreme Court. He, yeah. you know, he, yeah. I, I think if he thinks he can get away with it, he'll give it a go. Mm. Anyway, it feels like it's going to lose. That'll be something to come to if it happens. What I'm trying to sort of segue a little bit is to, you know, much like the French, for example, you know, how would we, not necessarily that particular issue, but how do, how will we organise the Labour Party to combat uh, the sort of authoritarianism that, that, that this government, if it comes? I, th- I think the, the biggest myth that is told after an election defeat 
is that you can't you can't change anything if you're not in power but it's just not true like 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 we said about France look at what's going on in France mm-hmm. history is made by those that that stand up and campaign and fight it, it's changed by the actions of ordinary people there's a really good author Howard Zinn um, he, he he's passed away now but he was an American author and he he wrote a, a people's history of the 21st century and for him he he very explicitly says you know he's not interested as a historian so much on what presidents and kings did but what ordinary people did mm-hmm. so he writes a history of America in the 20th century about and how it was shaped by the actions of, of, of women's rights campaigners, the civil rights movement, trade unionists. You know, how often do you hear American politics talk about trade unionists? And um, so, so I, I very much subscribe to that and think that obviously having a, a friendly government in power or in council or whatever is really useful, and, and you can get a lot of good stuff done. But that doesn't the, the flip side of that doesn't then mean well we're not in power. So there's absolutely nothing we can do. I think that's the biggest myth we tell ourselves after an election, and it's just not helpful. It just mm. it just leaves people demoralised. Um, I think the party needs to focus much more on grassroots campaigning, being more present um, in in local communities and fighting for change, whether they're in power or not. I think a lot of what happens in, in local CLPs is focused on... That's constituency Labour parties. Yeah, sorry for the jargon. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, the focus is on, on councils, um, uh, city council and county council. And a lot of great work is done by Labour members that are councillors. Um, so it's not in any way to, to, to dismiss that. But that's also a very small fraction of the membership that can actively get involved in what's going on in the council. Mm. Um, so that's sort of, if, we, if we keep our focus just on councils and, and, and what's going on in the council... Um, and, and I think I feel like the pace of a local party is almost set by the council agenda and the council timetables and the council elections. That leaves the vast majority of the membership with no proper way to engage unless they're being asked to, to leaflet for a councillor. Yeah. Um, we, we need to be focusing on, on you know, direct action. Like If you look in Lincoln, the issue gallery is closing. What's the, the local Labour Party's position on that? Mm. Um, you know, we've had, I think a good example of where we helped was, was, was with the healthcare strikes. Um, the Labour Party really supported um, mm. the healthcare strikes, you know, opening up Grafton House and, and individual Labour members were out um, on the picket with those people and, and, and on, on, on the protests that went through the town centre. I think that sort of thing is, is a model mm. that we could replicate yeah. across civil society. For, for context, the, the health visitors are basically, they're not, they're not midwives, but they're, they're people who come and visit very sick people in their homes very specialised nurses. When they were with the NHS, they were quite a high band. I forget exactly which one it was, but they were really reasonably well paid for that job. They recently got transferred to Lincolnshire County Council, uh, who decided to put them on a a lower banding. Um, And also, even though they were 2 pd over, which meant that they kept their paying conditions from their old job, they wouldn't see the same pay rises as other NHS staff. Uh, Unfortunately, although, the Labour Party did give them a lot of support. They didn't get very far with their strike, and a lot of them are now going back to the NHS uh, or retiring. So, obviously, that's something that we need to do, but we maybe need to do it better and on a larger scale. And, yeah, that's, and I think that's not to discourage further action. You know, I think a lot of good things came out of that. I like to see, see that sort of thing replicated. Yeah, see, seeing the community come together when we had the march down mm. at Lincoln High Street mm. in solidarity with the with the health visitors, that was a real sight to behold. And, mm. and a key thing we got there was that Extinction Rebellion were, were doing a protest on the same day, and there'd been a bit of back and forth trying to make sure these things didn't clash, and then they, they sort of did clash. Mm. Um, but 
because people involved in the wider, smaller labour movement had raised these issues with Extinction Rebellion, what they actually did was stop their protests when the, pro- when, when the march came down with the healthcare strikers. Mm. The Extinction Rebellion stopped their protest and they stood with the onlookers and, and, and applauded as they walked past. Mm. Um, which to me, so, that, so that, that's where maybe you know, people involved in the labour movement can help. The, the local Labour Party can support things like that, mm. but they can also help forge links between different activist groups. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and that's, that's when civil society becomes really powerful. And, and, and that can really then begin to change what happens at a council level. And if that happens in numerous towns, that can begin to start affecting what happens nationally. Yeah. And we have seen it before in Lincoln as well, by the way. Um, in 2016, I think, there was a proposal by, again, Lincolnshire County Council, usually the villains of the piece. <laughs> um, they wanted to uh, make South Lincoln Fire Station a part-time fire station. Um, they're just one of the absurd justifications for this was that well Grantham has a part-time fire station um, and Richard Davies said this to me he's the, 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 the councillor who was responsible uh, he said do you think Grantham residents are second class citizens so his argument for that was to, to bring down the status of Lincoln citizens but of course the counter to that was that well actually if you've got a full-time station in Lincoln they can help when there's a fire in Grantham as well mm. um, Everybody thought that that campaign would be lost, that Lincolnshire County Council was just going to do it anyway, but you had councillors, including our lately departed MP Karen Lee, who was a councillor at the time, uh, led the scrutiny committee, they were getting the data. Uh, the Trades Council were organising trade unions that come down. You had the FBU that came to the consultation meetings, and you had the Labour Party that was mobilised as well coming down to those consultation meetings and just barraging them with questions, petitions and so on. And to everyone's surprise, that campaign was won. And Lincoln and South Fire Station is still a full time. So it can be done. So it can be done when people work together. I think think that uh, across the country is the sort of approach we're going to need over the next five years because the, the Tories... Locally, if you look at some of the plans that the county council have got, um, but it, but also nationally, the Tories are they're going to do a lot of bad things. You yeah. know, a, a lot of people are going to get hurt by what the Tories are, want, are planning to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there has to be a resistance to it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and you know, if you're one of these people that's really sort of narrowly electorally focused, even then there's an argument for it because when you're knocking doors, you know, the next election you're doing so with, with candidates and, and a group of activists that have been fighting for their community mm-hmm. for the last five yeah, years. It completely dispels that argument that we're only there for elections as well. Yeah. Because we're always told that, oh, you're only here to get our vote. Well, actually, if, if we can stand on a record as standing up for local communities, local services, fighting Lincoln's corner, mm-hmm. if you're looking at it locally, or fighting Lincolnshire's corner nationally, then actually people start to recognise us as not as just a, a bunch of faceless people that just turn up to get votes. We're actually local people that care. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what it should be about. And that's, I, I don't know about you, but I know that that's why I got involved in politics, is because we care, not because we just want to win votes. Mm-hmm. Yes, we want to win votes. That's the end goal. But how you get there should be through good, strong activism, fighting that corner, and standing up to governments like we see now, making cuts, ruining so, people's so when, lives. So when people come along and say, well, it's very nice having principles, but there's no point without power, 
well, actually having those principles is how you get into That's power. a gateway yeah. to power. So that's, yes, that's exactly. Yes. And I think, you know, and it's not, it's not as if, it's not as if we don't have MPs and councillors that don't do this stuff already. Like, you know, I, I think Karen was very involved in the local community and had campaigned a lot for her area before she became MP. And I imagine a lot of other Labour MPs do that as well. Um, so it's not that this isn't happening at all, but what we need from the party is, is the resources and the strategy and, and the support to be able to do it really well and effectively mm-hmm. as local parties. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that be training, whether that be resources, you know, whatever. Um, it, it, it probably sort of happens scattered across across the country. You know, if you're involved with the local party, you're probably going to have some involvement in other activist stuff, maybe. Mm-hmm. What, what we need is, is a, a deliberate attempt by, by local parties to, to become more embedded in the local communities, I think. So we've got about nine minutes. Um, do you, This is what we want our activists to do. We think this is probably how we're going to get back into power. What do you think about the candidates? Do you think any of them are going to support a programme like that? Who's going to best guide the social movement, if you like, to use uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, approach? Do it, or do, do, do we not feel that any of them are uh, getting to that point yet? I mean, you, you saw this sort of rhetoric from Corbyn and McDonald very mm-hmm. early on. I, I, I don't think they and they did something. They created some of the, like the community officer positions, haven't they, within the party and things yeah. like that? Um, yeah. So, so I think I think, and th- th- you know, they're long-time activists and campaigners themselves. They've been backbenching peace their whole life. So I think I think Corbyn and McDonald got that, and I think they they're on board with that vision. Um, and, you know, they they've sort of seen Rebecca Lombardi as their as their continuity candidate. If I, I hate the phrase, but I suppose that is what it is. Um, so I suppose in that sense, you you might expect that that she has those leanings herself. Um, I don't know if someone like Keir Starmer would as naturally understand that sort of politics. You know, he, he's from a a professional law sort of background and a very typical politician career route really I think mm. Keir Starmer has had um, so I don't know if that's necessarily and I think his, his faction of the party um, if well, he, does he really have a faction because he's well he's got uh, factions that are supporting him yeah. whether he would have an affinity with them mm, I think is actually probably by the by if, if yeah. those are the people getting there that he's going to have been indebted to them to some extent isn't he that is one of his strengths as some people have highlighted the, the fact that he isn't Affiliated with one faction or another, mm. you can't exactly pin him down. He wouldn't be my candidate of choice, but you can certainly see he's he's not explicitly from the left or explicitly from the right. But part part of that might be because he was. I mean, I watched him speak at conference twice mm. when he was uh, a shadow Brexit minister. And to be fair, it's a difficult. It'll be a difficult brief to really do anything radical with because of the complicated situation, but. I remember his speeches were intensely boring mm. um, because we'd heard it all before and he couldn't really say anything radical or exciting. So I don't really know where he is. The other thing that concerns me a little bit is obviously his previous role before he was an MP, was mm. director, of, director of Public Prosecutions. And I do worry a little bit that he might be our Kamal Harris mm. in that, you know, he was director of Public Prosecutions when the Tories were trying to crack down on benefit fraudsters, you know, um, as they as they would put it, you know, um, he was director of public prosecutions. I think during the, the the new Labour era as well, when they were trying to introduce ID cards as well. So it, it, some of that sort of worries me. I 
I like the fact that he could potentially reach out to all sides of the party. I mean, it, it, it's um, obviously we're looking for unity. I, I think I could live with him potentially. I I would, I would still withhold my support for him. Obviously, if he won the vote, I'd get behind him because that's all we've got to do now. Yeah, is get behind because we can't be as Corbyn supporters to then turn around and completely lambast the next leader because they're not fully on our side politically mm. when saying actually after calling for unity for the last it's, it's, it's not very years. helpful to trash yeah exactly it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't help but we can still be critical of their history and we can be critical of their politics but mm. be constructively critical I think, uh, I think I'm worried about people that talk about this unity though because how ultimately is Sauron going to do that how is he going to bring all factions together ultimately it's going to he'd have to at some point water down policy mm. and, I, and that that's not okay for me that's not acceptable it's either that or you do sort of a joint ticket of balancing it off so you have um, maybe a more left leaning leader and then I know we've tried it with Watson and Corbyn and then having more centrist right wing deputy to sort of balance off that ticket a bit I, I just don't know if we need that though like, are, are the centrists and the, and the right that powerful of the party anymore and if they're not happy with the party yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of this broad tent business. I, I mean, I'm not saying we should purge people, but it, it, you know, if people want to stay in the party, then, then that's their choice, and, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll campaign and I'll leaflet beside them. But I, I don't think we should be going out of our way to water down policy or, or, or no. give them give them token positions in the party. We, we we are becoming what I think is a radical left party in the UK that's got real solutions to real problems. And I don't think we should be trying to give some, some token bits to people that don't want to get on board with that project. I'm not interested in keeping them in the party. If they want to leave, then that, that's their choice. And, I, and from what I've seen, you know, Cor- Corbyn was very popular within the party. The membership elected him on increasing majorities. You know. mm. um, and, and my experience in the campaign trail was that, that we were incredibly unified during the election and, and, and a lot of people in the membership were inspired by those policies. Um, a lot of the policies passed the conference went through quite easily. You know, I, I, I don't think we have this, this really... It wasn't like when Corbyn was first elected that we had this really large, powerful, sort of centrist and right sort of thing that was, that was completely blocking any progress. So I, I, I don't feel a, a burning desire to, to reach out to sort of people on the centre and the right of the party. I, I, don't think, I don't think that should be our primary concern. I, th- I think it would be really interesting to see what happens, sorry. Um, no, no, no. Um, because... You know, I've been a member since 2010. Mm. My first action was to vote in the leadership election then, um, and I voted for David Miliband. And a lot of uh, and, 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 choice, and, yes. and you, the people were voting. Labour Party members want to win. That's the, the first consideration for most people, um, and they vote for whoever they think is most likely to to become prime minister. And in that instance. The membership chose Ed Miliband. Um, Did you think D- David Miliband was the, was the key star of that election, though, wasn't he? I think. I mean, obviously, he was the sort of continuity, continuity, yeah. continuity Blairite candidate. And of course, all the people in the party had, up to that point they joined in the New Labour era, mm. so that that's what they were voting for. And then, you know, my politics was quite different to what it is now, and that's what I was voting for. I actually put Ed Miliband at the bottom of my ballot paper because I always use all of my preferences and I really didn't want him at the time. I was not quite an out-and-night Blairite, but, you know, I was in that direction. But in 2015, I voted for Jeremy Corbyn along with many other Labour Party members because 
and the, because basically Blairism or, or trying to meet the Tories halfway had lost us two elections. And so the membership sort of pivoted, I think, towards looking to someone who said, okay, well, maybe the way to win is to go somewhere else to do something different, to do something more radical. Um, and that's why, and it's worth bearing in mind as well, although people often talk about these registered supporters and things like that, Corbyn actually got 49% of the membership in 2015, a sneeze away from a majority. Mm. Um, you know, so without existing members, people like me, who've been in the party for years, he wouldn't have got as, as, as near as he did. And then, obviously, in 2016, people voted. They, they, I think they saw the, the coup, as it were, with uh, Owen Smith as a bit of a betrayal. Um, uh, so it'll be really interesting to see what happens now. Um, obviously, there are other candidates in the mix. We've got Jess Phillips, who... Mm. I mean, <laughs> she's... she's as, would you say she's as close to the continuity Blairite? Uh, yeah. Well, I think... It, it's, it's going to be an interesting change for her having to talk about politics instead of just lambasting Corbyn. Mm. Actually talking about some political questions as opposed to just having a go at someone. Mm. So it will certainly be interesting to see what she's got to say. I'd never support her. She'd certainly be going near the bottom, if not at the bottom of my ballot. But, you know... I mean, it's got to be someone to represent 4.5%. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I think people like Jess Phillips have, have you know, they've sort of latched onto this election defeat as a personal opportunity. Mm. But I think pe- people like her have, have questions to answer themselves about what role they played in, in how Labour has fared over the last four years. Mm. Um, fair enough, uh, you know, going into 2019, we were much more unified as a party than we have been at any other point. Yeah. But there's, there's historic memory, isn't there? You know, the, the image that of Corbyn was created for many people in his early, early months as, as, a, mm. as the leader. Mm. And, and people like Jess Phillips... I think behaves completely inappropriately. If, if you've got, you know, we're a democratic party. If you've got issues with the leader. You should be able to raise those. But that, that's an internal thing. You know, you raise those in party meetings you, and all the rest of it. You don't go to the press and, and, and do interviews, absolutely tearing the leader apart. So I think I think people like Jess Phillips and and there are plenty of MPs at the time that did that sort of thing. I think they played a role in helping create this image of Corbyn that. that helped damages in the election as well mm-hmm. so it, it it's a little i find it very frustrating when you see people from that side of the party sort of jump on this election defeat as a chance to bring back their sort of idea of, of what we should be about but actually they they played a role in in, in well, yeah. damaging corbyn's credibility and therefore the parties mm-hmm. as well yeah there's always been this argument as, as you say that corbyn is not fit to be prime minister mainly because of his leadership qualities mm. and that that directly goes back to the fact that the parliamentary Labour Party had been undermining him from day one. Yeah. Less so the membership. In fact, the membership had been very much behind him. Yeah. But if they're going to continue to undermine leaders, say if Long Bailey gets in and these sort of Blairite characters continue to undermine the left and the party, we're not going to look any more capable of governing as we are under this next leader as we, are, as we were under Corbyn because it will just look like we're continuously fighting, we've got no leadership qualities. And that's what we need as a party, is that, yeah. is that ability to look like we can lead the party into government and have a strong government. And, yeah. and, and that's what people want to see ultimately, a decisive and strong government. And you can't have that if we're internally bickering when already a, a, a leadership election or even two leadership elections have happened. Yeah. Mm. 
Uh, I'm just trying to work out if Emily Thornbury took part in the chicken coop. Uh, no. no, no, she didn't actually. So the the ones who were in the leadership contest who didn't mm. resign in 2016 are Long Bailey, Thornbury, and Lewis. Yeah, because right um, what's their name? Starmer. He he resigned. Starmer he? resigned. Yeah. Lisa Nandy resigned. Lisa Nandy what, uh, and Philip and Phillips resigned. Um, what do we think about Lisa Nandy? I don't really know much about. I don't really. No, my my initial instinct is I, I'm not a huge fan. Now a lot of people. Have, she talks a lot about town. She does. She's, yes. She, she loves emerged, the town. What I do know is she's emerged as an internet meme <laughs> since she she uh, since she announced her candidacy hmm. um, as one as talking about the divide between cities and towns. I guess she doesn't have much to say about rural areas in between. Maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, uh, Lincoln is a city technically, but it's got the character perhaps of a town mm. and it's, it's uh, in terms of its size uh, yeah. maybe is that a, a relevant conversation because when, when we when she talks about town she's talking about sort of northern Brexit northern towns, towns yeah towns, well that's the, I think that is the key distinction isn't it because it, well, I, I think actually the, the biggest divide is between north and south or specifically the southeast and the rest of the country mm. that's what we should be talking about as a party and the difference between towns and cities, I, I, I would say that by city she means London and Manchester. Yeah. So sort of these big hubs of investment yeah. where all the money's being pumped into and towns, sort of places like Warrington, I suppose, being forgotten by the government, mm-hmm. poor transport, poor levels of investment, poor education, poor healthcare, being completely forgotten. And we should rightly be talking about that, but it isn't a distinction between towns and cities. It's a distinction between that sort of Westminster southeast bubble mm. and the rest of the country that's been left behind. I mean, ultimately, it's too much poor, isn't it? Because you, you'll go to areas in big cities that have got terrible deprivation still. There's areas in London that aren't, you know, that aren't seeing this benefit. Well, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, on the, if you look at the macro figures for London, it looks all great. But there's areas in our London that you go to that don't receive that. In the same way, you go to places in Manchester and Liverpool that won't be, won't be seeing the benefit of those things either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and and as a Londoner, I can vouch for that. You know, it, London is actually is full of inequalities. It may be doing well. The city may be doing well, but there's areas of London that are massively underinvested. They don't have the the networks and infrastructure in terms of railways. Like the tube doesn't go to all the London boroughs. Mm. And yet they're they're considered to be in the same pot. So we've got to remember that. I think you're right that the ultimate distinction is between the rich and the poor, and we should be trying to work out that balance and bring that closer together than working. You know, making just making towns into cities won't make them any richer. That's for sure. Yeah. So we um, we haven't talked about Clive Lewis that much, but he's she, he's only got four nominations, and the deadline's tomorrow. I think a lot of people yeah. will go for a record on Bailey instead of Clive Lewis. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, to not it's, split the left I understand he's quite a good constituency MP yeah. from people I know in, in his constituency. I've seen him do his speeches a couple of times and he, yeah. he struck me as quite good. I like the referendum on the monarchy. Maybe, maybe we don't really want another referendum. Yeah. He might not go for that. But I like where his head's at there. But I like where yeah, maybe not yeah. yet. Yeah, it won't, go, <laughs> it won't go down well in the current political climate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Emily Thornbury might not even actually because she's quite short she's only got mm. 10 nominations and you need 23 so she's yeah, I don't think she'll make it so it's probably going to be Long Bailey Lisa Nandy 
Jess Phillips, Lakia Starmer, those sort of I think I think it's mainly going to be between Bailey and Starmer. You would have yeah. thought so, yeah. Um, I mean, on Clive Lewis, he seems to be he's, he, his positioning is, is very much he's put himself to the left of Long Bailey. Mm. Um, I don't know if that will win a lot of votes, and it clearly hasn't won any nominations really in the in the PLP. But uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly commendable to go out of principle, not just to win votes, as I imagine a couple of the uh, a couple of the potential leaders have have done. They've just yeah. positioned themselves with a catchphrase that might win votes but might not necessarily be carried out when they are in office. I can't fault him for putting himself forward so he's still a potential future leader Absolutely. as well. We should certainly be on the front bench, that's for sure, in, in yeah. any future Labour shadow yeah. government. Not all for us to decide but you, he would get your endorsement then. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I mean we are really waiting for to see who gets it and presumably there'll be a, a debate at some point that we'll get to see. Mm-hmm. We've got until April anyway. Um, deputy leadership candidates, just quickly. Um, obviously, we know Angela Rain is running along with Long Bailey. They are the uh, the real Northern powerhouse, as they've dubbed <laughs> themselves. Uh, Richard Bergen, um, he came to Lincoln a little while ago, didn't he? A couple of months ago. Mm. Yeah. Quite made uh, quite quite good radical speeches. Actually, seemed to understand class politics quite well. Yeah. Uh, Dawn Butler, don't really know much about her, but actually maybe a black woman as the uh, deputy leader will be pretty good. I remember seeing her speak at The World Transformed. I thought yes. she was quite uh, mm-hmm. on point there. I uh, can't remember because it was about three or four years ago now. Um, but uh, yeah, Ian Murray, who is the sole Labour MP in Scotland. Uh-huh. Um, he's sort of representing the right if you like I think on yeah. that uh, list do we know anything about Alan Carr? she was, uh, she's the Tooting MP um, I know she uh, took over from Sadiq Khan when he became the Mayor of London she's certainly been good in her role as Shadow Sports Minister on the issues around uh, in football with racism she's certainly been a strong um, uh, well, she's been a strong voice in standing up against that Mm. very firm against the racism that we see and discrimination as a wider issue in sport so I mean she's I don't think she's ready for leadership in in, in many capacities compared to some of the other candidates for sure but she's certainly one for the future she hasn't long been a, an MP so that'll be that'll be one to watch I think okay that's good so we've got the future of the party potentially yeah we've got that yeah, sewn up as well yeah but Give her, give her a good. I think promoting her maybe in the front bench would be would be good. She she seems fairly competent. I don't know where she stands politically, but she seems as a Labour MP, she's fairly competent. We'll we'll find out more about these people as uh, as time goes on. Yeah. Um, I feel quite optimistic actually. Hmm. I think we could we could uh, we've got we've got some good candidates there, um, and I really look forward to seeing the first leadership debate and. I think it would be a good opportunity for us to talk about the sort of grassroots politics we've been talking about today as well. Mm. I think people need to ask those questions about how we organise at a grassroots level, not just electorally, um, going forward over the next five years or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So, where should we three meet again? Do you think we'll do this again? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully with the ongoing leadership election, uh, there'll be plenty to talk about over the next month or so. Right, so, 
thank you for listening and keep watching this space and uh, solidarity.